What's the point of this passage? To get it right. Get what right? God. Get God right. In what particular way? Exchange 
that went on. Rather than the eternal God and how he revealed himself, they turned to creation that has an end point. And they replaced that with their worship. And the result was this. They exchanged, in chapter 1, verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for lies. And we saw last week that every system of belief, besides the scripture, breaks down to this. Whether it would be outward atheism or a false religion, everything exchanges the truth of God for lies and creates a false God, another God, an idol to live for. And Paul really says that what happened here is they exchanged honoring God for living in the sewer. And you can see the downward spiral in chapter 1 and verse 29 through 32. They exchanged honoring God for sin. Well, now he's going to write chapter 2. In chapter 2, he's just going to show another way that people replace God in their hearts. This is the self-righteous nose in the air way. This is the moralist's way without the gospel. This is, we could say, the religious person's way here. But it's at the core, the same thing. And what Paul is trying to bring us to in chapter 2 is ask us this question. Has the gospel changed you? Has it changed your heart, not just the outside? Has it changed your heart? And if we skip down to verse 29, we're going to see the whole thrust of this passage here. What needs to happen is an inner transformation that only God can do here. Why is he doing this? Well, remember the purpose of writing this book here. What he's trying to accomplish here is have have a, a new Antioch here to take the gospel to the nations, to do the nations. Specifically, he wants Rome to be an Antioch that's to be a launching pad for taking the gospel of Spain. You see in chapter 15. And he needs the support of the Roman church. And he probably wants to assemble a team with him from the Roman church to take over there. The problem is there's some needed humility. They're, they're not thinking of themselves less than they ought to think, they say in Romans chapter 12. And they needed humility in the truth of the gospel to produce unity and to propel the mission here to Spain. And what we need to see, first of all, in verses 1 through, 6 of, 1 through 16 of chapter 2, that Paul wants us to understand that God is the perfectly just judge. God is the perfectly just judge. He says in verse 1, Therefore, you are unexcusable, O man, read that sentence, you think he's talking about those in verses 18 through 32. But who's he speaking of? For wherein you judge one another, you condemn yourselves. You that judge do the same thing. So after hearing verses 18 through 32, people would probably, who would have been on the religious side, said, wow, preaching Paul, you got it. This is what's wrong with the world. And then Paul flips that, and he, he says, and you are just the same at your core. You are just the same. You are condemned and you are unexcused from judgment. You see, one of the problems of the human heart here, and I told you it can go two ways, like the older brother and the prodigal son or the prodigal son, right? It just kind of goes, just does his own thing. Is this. Because of sin, we have at our core a pride, a superiority, 
superiority complex. And we compare other people to ourselves. The problem is not that we don't have a healthy self-image and we need to have a better ego. The problem is we have too much. And the scripture tells us here that we are the same at the core. That, that, that whether we are the, the, the ones in 18 through 32, that downward spiral, or whether we are the ones who think we are obeying God, but in reality, there is, a, there is a hypocrisy there. The problem is we both stand before the just, the perfectly just judge, condemned and unexcused from judgment. And so look, look what he's saying in verse 4. You think you condemn these people, but you're just as bad, so we say. You don't have an excuse. You say they're wicked, and they should be punished. And guess what? Yes, and you as well, because you're doing these same things just in different ways. You're judging others who do these same things, and you're doing them. And God in His justice, you're right. He's going to punish anybody who does these such things here. But you just hide it a little bit. And since you're judging others for doing these things, you think you're going to avoid God's judgment when you're doing the same things? He says in verse 3. When in reality, don't you see that God has been wonderfully kind? He has been patient with you. Doesn't that mean anything to you? Shouldn't that be changing you? Can't you see his kindness is intended to turn you from sin? He's been so patient. He hasn't zapped you like he like you want him to zap those in verses 18 through 32. And they're thinking, well, I think I'll escape. If you think that, in your hypocrisy, you're missing that God is just being kind to you and giving you time to repent. And that's what he wants to understand. That God is a perfectly just judge. Now, when we stand in condemnation over other people, and we don't see the log in our own eye, quote Jesus in Matthew 7, what we're saying is, the judge means we, we know right from wrong, and we want to see a change in someone else rather than us. We're wired this way, aren't we? We just have this self-righteous bend, don't we, to see wrong in other people and not ourselves. Um, and what we're really doing is an idolatry, just like in chapter 118 through 32. We are exchanging ourselves to be the judge rather than God, the just and perfect and righteous judge. We're putting ourselves in the place of God. And what Paul wants them to understand is, is they're doing the same things. We don't have it all together, he's saying. And we're missing the graciousness of grace. And we're seeing the shortcomings in other people's lives as permission to be the judge over them. What happens is we are wielding a sword over other people here. When the beam is in your own eyes, what Paul's saying, our souls become God rather than God being God. And rather than imitating God and his kindness to turn and his kindness to turn you from sin to others, we are we are uh, we, we, we are we are taking that card, the judge card, and pinning it to our hotels. As a result, what's happening? Well, verse 5 says, you're basically bringing the wrath of God upon you as well. Look at verse 5. 
But after your hardness and impenitent, unrepentant heart, treasure up to yourselves wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. The response is you're bringing the wrath of God upon you as well. There's a day coming. There's a day coming. For God will judge everyone according to what they have done. And verse 7. They'll give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, who have changed hearts, who are seeking God, seeking after His glory and honor and the immortality that God gives in verse 7. But He's going to pour out His wrath and anger on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth, and live lives of wickedness, whether overt or whether more subtle. In other words, there's going to be trouble and calamity when God judge comes. It doesn't matter if you were the pagan Gentile or if you were the older brother and the prodigal son who doesn't want God's grace. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God. And the Jew first and also the Gentile, just like judgment, just like the gospel in Romans 1, the Jew first and the Gentile, God's grace, judgment to the Jew first and to the Gentile in Romans chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. Because verse 11 God does not show favorites. He doesn't show favorites, is the point. What makes a good judge a good judge? A good judge is a judge who doesn't show favorites, right? What's a symbol for the legal system? The woman with a balance of scales, right? And what does she have over her eyes? An impartiality, a blindfold, right? It doesn't excuse sin. It's all the same outcome. He is the righteous, holy judge. He has set the demand before us. And this sword will slice both ways. And it tells us without the Lord, we are without hope. And religion is just another dead end. It's another way of making me God and my, myself my Savior. And so, one of the questions we need to ask ourselves here, honestly, as we come to this text, each and every one of us here, is, are we a new creation? Have our, have our hearts been changed and transformed and keep on being transformed? Are you indwelt by the Spirit? Is God in you, putting God outside? Is God in you, making Himself manifest through you? Are you letting things get into the way of being made new? Is your heart's compass, the arrow here, pointing to seeking the kingdom of God first? Are you bearing the picture of Christ in you, in your homes, in your marriages, in your families, in your workplaces, in your entertainment? This is the crux here of issue of Jew and Gentile. Paul's trying to bring together what is needed is new hearts of God in you. And there's no exceptions to that. There's no fast passes here. Paul is bearing this good news he wants to bring to Rome, right? And at the end of the book of Acts, Paul bears that Jesus is the king of the world, the Caesar of Rome. And one of the things he's going to want to point to is say, in these little communities of people here in your city are proof in their new creations. The raise out what you used to be 
And we cannot do the opposite of what Jesus did to us in his grace and kindness of transforming it. So really, what he's doing here is he's calling them to a life that Jesus called them to. This is the normal Christian life of transformation and grace. But he's got more to say. Look at verses 12 through 16. He says, For as many as sin without law shall also perish without law, the law being the Torah, the Jewish law, Moses' law here. And as many as sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are judged before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Saying there needs to be a, a transformation that happens. In verse 14. For when the Gentiles which have not the law, God revealed the law of Moses to the Israelites, right? Do by nature the things contained in these laws, these, having not the law, are a law to themselves, which show, or who show the work of the law, written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. There's a couple things he's saying here. First of all, is that God's expectations for morality are written in our hearts in the sense that our conscience understands pretty generally what's right and wrong, right? You can go to any culture and they have certain taboos and certain things that are good or bad. Obviously those don't align to the word of God here. What he's saying is, even the Gentiles have a sense here in their conscience of what is right and wrong. And some of them have had a better practice of what is right and wrong than you as the Jewish people who God had revealed his word to. But when it all comes down to it, the issue is this, in verse 16. One day, God will bring everything to light. I want you to think about this. There's coming a day when none of us will be able to hide. We will not be able to even deceive our own selves. God's going to check the inside of our wallets as well as the outside, so to speak. Let me illustrate it like this. There's a beach near uh, uh, Cornwall in Great Britain. It's unlike any other stretch of, of coast in the world. Not because of its breakers or its surf or its beauty, but because of what washes up there on the beach. Because of the currents. Back in 1997, there's a shipping container filled with millions of Lego pieces that were under the waves of the coast. And as a result, 62 containers, and you all know how little Legos are, right? 62 containers on board that ship went overboard, and one of those containers, just one of them, had 4.8 million Lego pieces in it, bound for New York. No one knows exactly what happened or what was in the other 61 containers, but Lego pieces started washing up in the north and south coast of Cornwall. And in a quirky twist here, a lot of those Legos actually had a nautical theme. And so people were finding on the beach little plastic painted cutlasses and flippers and spear guns and seagrass and scuba gear as well as, as, well as drag gear of those Lego pieces. Well, it's because, um, according to a, a U.S. oceanographer, um, ocean currents here, uh, who studied this, he said, really what happened is this. The most profound lesson you learn from the Lego story is that things that go to the bottom of the sea don't always stay there. They can be carried around the world, seemingly random, but they're subject to the uh, 
They're, 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 they're subject to the ocean's tides. They're subject to the ocean's currents. And it's a good example of how when you're even inside a steel container, sunken items don't stay sunken, do they? Friends, that's what Paul's saying in Romans chapter 2, verse 16. Our sins will be brought up. The human condition will be exposed. The things we try to hide here, these Lego pieces, like Lego pieces, will rise to the surface here. And the question is, what will we do? What change will we accept here in this life that God offers? And one of these days, it's not going to be me standing before God, pointing my finger at somebody else and preparing myself, is it? It will be me before God. And I won't have mommy or daddy with me. And I won't have my spouse with me. And I won't have this person or that person. And I won't have someone else to compare to. God will reveal the secrets of the heart. So what he's saying here in verses 12 through 15 is that there is no partiality. The law of God reveals this great debt between my heart and God's. That's a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? It gets a little bleaker. And by the way, remember Romans 1 through 3 is some pretty dark news. He's not going to give the good news until chapter 3, verse 21 through the end of the chapter. Because he wants us to soak. He wants us to sit in this bathtub here and let this sink in. Because it is a way of slicing away the pride of our hearts, which should produce a gospel unity as we respond in faith to the message that God's delivered. So here's his point no partiality. But I want you to see here um, if. If verses 1 through 16 show us that God will be the righteous judge of all, he's the perfectly just judge, then number two is this. Self-righteous pride is just another way of us trying to be our own God. I've already alluded to that, but verses 17 through 28 show that in a deeper way. Self-righteous pride is just another way of trying to be our own God. What we need to be is we need the outside righteousness of someone else who has never sinned. To be made in alignment with God, to walk in, receive Christ Jesus the Lord, and to walk in in faith. Remember chapter 1, verse 17. Remember what it said. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by resting in what God has said. To live it out. There is a result here. And we will either seek God or we will seek self. But God's going to expose uh, this layer again in verses 17 to 20. And he kind of repeats what he's, what he's already said in chapter 2, 1 through 3. Look at verse 17. Behold, you are called a Jew and rest in the law. Rely on the law and you make your boast of God. And you know that his will and approve the things that are more excellent. Being instructed of the law, are confident that yourselves are guided in the blind, or light of that are in darkness. You're an instructor. You teach one another, verse 21. Teach you not yourself? He's using a conversation, an imaginary conversation here to say, here's what you're saying. Let me ask you a question about that. Here's what you're thinking. Let me ask you a question from that. 
to bring us to Jesus. And what he's saying is, really, um, you're a walking oxymoron. That's what he's saying, verses 17 through 23. You call yourself Jews. You boast about your special relationship with him because of the, the covenant God made with Abraham. You know what he wants. You think you're a guide to the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. And think about Jesus' encounters with these people as he walked this earth, right? The Pharisees and the scribes and those who studied the law, right? They, they thought that God's law gave them complete knowledge and truth and they lorded over other people. And he says, woe to you guys, you hypocrites. He said, it's going to be better for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment because they didn't have the light that you had. God's going to hold you a higher standard. Why don't you teach yourselves? You tell others to steal, but you steal. You say it's wrong to commit adultery, but you commit adultery. You condemn idolatry. Then you take stuff from the temples. You're so proud of denying the law, but you're dishonoring God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say, Isaiah 52, 5, that the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of it. Wow. And by the way, remember the Sermon on the Mount? Oh, I've never committed adultery. Whoever, what? Oh, I've never stolen anything. Really? Reputations, time? Oh, I don't have statues on my mantle I bow down to. Oh, really? What Jesus is saying, right? You don't have things that drive you that shouldn't be driving you? You don't have things that you hope for and are living for that shouldn't be? What he's saying is this. There's a difference between knowing and being transformed and changed, right? When grandmother was... Uh, Told a story about her three-year-old granddaughter, um, Beverly, was playing with her toys. <clears throat> and her mom was holding laundry across the room, and she noticed Beverly's shirt was dirty and it needed to be washed. And so she called two times to uh, Beverly, and she didn't get a response. And her, and her mom gave the, the, the full name call, right? Beverly Elizabeth Provost, did you hear me? And Beverly honestly answered, Yes, Mama, my ears did, but my legs did it. Right? Difference. There's a difference there, isn't there? And Paul says in verse 224 that really what's going on here is that you are blaspheming God. You are blaspheming God. He quotes Isaiah 52, verse 5, Ezekiel 36, verse 20. And what had happened was this in those Old Testament passages. Israel had failed completely in the task that God set for her to be a light to the nations, the word and the law that he gave. And the only way was for God to send them aside who would take upon himself the effect, the full effect of their failure, and through him establish a new covenant. This is in Isaiah 52. You know who's introduced at the end of Isaiah 52 and 53? The suffering servant who would suffer for the sins of Israel. Who would die for the sins of Israel and the world by extension. Ezekiel 36 here also talks about the Gentiles blaspheming the name of God. 
uh, making a mockery of God because of Israel. And then it goes on in Ezekiel 36 to talk about a new covenant that God's going to write his law on the inside of people's hearts. And Paul has those themes here in mind. And his point against the fellow Jews and against Paul, remember in Philippians 3, he says, I was this way too, right? This is how I lived my life, was this. That God's charge here, what the prophets said, said about Israel, had become true. And don't walk in this. Be transformed by Christ's gospel. And what Paul's saying in Romans chapter 2 is, what's going on here with this hypocrisy is that this confirms the prophet's charge. When the unbelievers look at you, they curse God. They don't see an inward change. Yes, national Israel, they had failed in their calling here, but God had not failed. And you're going to see in chapters 9 through 11 uh, that God's going to uh, God will remain true to his calling despite the better of the people he called him. He's going to have a future plan for Israel. But what he's saying is this. It's like we're all playing dodgeball. And we're the judge. And we're trying to knock people down. Throw the ball at other people. And that ball hits that person and then it bounces back and it hits you right in the head. Because when we become the one who is the hero of the story, we have just short-circuited the God of grace. And God in his word becomes a servant of you instead of you a bondservant of the gospel of grace. Because our heart's problem is without the Lord Jesus, we look for exaltation and worship we think is due to us. God gives tremendous grace when it's humility. A right understanding of God and his grace and a proper understanding of us together in relation to that is a powerful thing. So self-righteous pride is another way of trying to be our own God. So it was a big problem here. He spends 28 verses to say, man, even when you want to be good, without the power of Christ, here's what ends up happening. You become your own God. Let's get to the good news. He gives a hint to it here, 28 and 29. Here's what he says. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, capitalized spirit, and not in the letter, you read this in chapter 7, whose praise is not of men, but of God. What he's saying is this. What really counts in God's eyes here is not because you were born of Jewish parents or because you've gone to church as a kid all your life or you have this position in the church. It's not these outward things. A true Jew here, he's saying in verse 29, is one whose heart is made right with God. And this circumcision that was such a sign here of the um, uh, of the of, of, of the Jews as they were God's covenant disfavored people here. It's not merely obeying the letter of the law. Remember what I read this morning, Luke. Pharisees tithe from the herbs in their gardens, snipped off little leaves of mint. They kept the letter of the law and then some. 
But what they didn't have was a change of heart produced by the Spirit, chapter 29. And a person with a changed heart doesn't seek the approval of men. They seek the approval of God. So what he's saying is this. <clears throat> we can try to be our own God. We can even do some things that make us look good on the outside. But there's a work on the inside that needs to be done. And self-righteous pride is just another way of trying to be our own God. But here's the good news of verse 3. We need a new heart. We need a new heart. Did you ever go to one of those supermarket chains that tries to pass on its own products as a name brand product? I think of like Walmart's members mark Dr. Pitt. Right? Um, or Dr. Pepper. Um, you buy their breakfast cereal designs and somehow they're not lucky charms, but they're some other corny name, right, in replacement there. And it's kind of the same, but it's not the same. My parents didn't have a lot of money growing up, and so mom would buy IGA's Tastios to Cheerios. Cheerios kind of aren't really good anyway. It's like, you can't eat those things without a drink or milk. It's like sawdust. But Tastios took it to another level. <laughs> For a buyer, you can look at the outside of the thing. The labels can mislead, can't they? And sometimes they're designed to do exactly that. Paul's point in this paragraph here is the label that the Jewish person would wear here particularly the men, obviously, was the label of circumcision. And what he's saying is that product had turned out to not even be what it was supposed to be. And the product here was people. You, he says, the Jewish people. This outward label here, circumcision, he wants it to know, wants them to know that what was true of the name needed to be true of the badge here. And the only way that could happen was a changed heart. Jeremiah the prophet had told Israel, Oh, you go and you, you, you tear your clothes to show that you're in distress about something. And he says, What needs to happen is you need to rend your heart. The, the matter here, the heart of the matter is the circumcision of the heart, Paul said. And he refers to Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 30 here. And what he's talking about here is God's new work in people, his new covenant here. And he's talking in the language of the Old Testament, what they would understand here. What is, how this has happened, this has been fulfilled here and taken place through God's Spirit. And he hasn't mentioned Jesus by name yet here in this. But that's the key to this happening here. God's actions to Messiah. And he says, this kind of person is, the heart changed here, gets praise not from other human beings, but from God. And he's using a wordplay here. 
The Hebrew name, where we get the word Jew is from the Hebrew name Judah. And Judah actually means praise. And Paul here is saying, it's a praise you want. He says, you want the name that says you can lift up your head and claim a special dignity here? That comes from the one who changes the inside of the heart, not your ethnic status. Get it from God, because God writes his law in the heart and the spirit, the new covenant. Deuteronomy 10 said, And now, Israel, let the Lord require you to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your, for your good and deep heaven and the highest heavens upon the Lord your God, also the earth, with all that is in it. Lord, delight only your fathers who love me, chosen and set us after them, you above all peoples. And then he says in Deuteronomy 10 16, Therefore, Circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Be stiff-necked, stubborn, no longer. Because the Lord is the God of gods. He's the great God. He's mighty and awesome. He shows no partiality. He doesn't take bribes. Deuteronomy 36, 30 verse 6, he says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. The love of the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you can live. Here's what's happening in Romans chapter 2. People had all these trappings, right? They didn't love God. And the way we're going to love God is having to change our Deuteronomy 30, he says, I set before you good life and death, death and evil. And I command you, the Lord your God, to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to keep His commandments. To bless, to prosper, to flourish here. And you're going to be tempted to be drawn away and worship other gods. And you're going to mix that into what I've given you. It's wrong here. What you need here is a new heart. There's an ocean liner called the Queen Mary. Maybe some of you have heard of it years gone by. When it was launched in 1936, it was the largest ship across the oceans. For four decades, in a world war, she served until she was retired. What happened is, when she retired, they anchored her to Queen Mary's floating hotel and museum in Long Beach, California. And when they changed it, or the Queen Mary, into that particular role, they took her three massive smokestacks. They took them off, and they scraped them down and repainted them. But when they took them off, and they set them on the dock, those things just crumbled into dust. Nothing was left of the three-quarter inch steel plate that these stacks had been formed. And all that was left, literally, was 30 coats of paint that had been applied over the years. Steel that absolutely rusted away. Remember what Jesus called the Pharisees? Whitewashed tombs. They had no substance, only an exterior appearance. Do you love God? That's what Romans 2 asks us. How do you love God? Because He has brought you near by the blood of His cross. He's changed you. You desire to do His will. 
ask you this morning, because we can get kind of stiff, is your heart more tender than it was? Or is your heart harder than it was? Do you find yourself more irritated or more compassionate? As the years have gone by, you find yourself more angry over the years or more repentant and patient to others. As you look back, is your heart right now more fully set on the Lord and His kingdom? Would you say that you're filled right now with more and more anxiety or more and more peace? I'm speaking to believers right now. Are you walking close to Him? Are you clinging to Him? Are you finding more and more light and transformation in Him? Do you remember in Luke 18 when Jesus gave this parable about two people who went to the temple to pray? Luke 18, 9 says, He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Is that not Romans chapter 2? One a Pharisee and one a tax collector, right? The Pharisee stood and he praised God. I just got this outward thing. He's praying, right? God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, idolaters, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I get tithes of all that I possess. The tax collector. He's standing in the corner behind the ladder. He would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, "But God, be merciful to me, a sinner." What's Jesus' commentary on that? I tell you, he said, that man went down to his house justified. Rather than the others. For he who exalts himself will be humbled one day. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. How are you responding to the word of God? Are you in it? How's your intake? What do you love? Is there something you're loving more than God or neighbor? What are you wanting? What are you desiring, craving, longing for? Whose desires are you obeying? What are you seeking here? Where are you banking your hopes? What are you building your life around? What are you ruled by? And from verse 29, here is what I want you to understand. Those of you who are in this room here, you haven't come to Jesus yet. You might even know all the stuff. But God's command to you is to turn and believe the good news of Jesus. Jesus is the bearer of good news for our hearts. He in Romans 1, 1 through 7, his, his royal birth as a, as a seed of David secured his claim to the eternal throne promised to King David, the king of the world. His miracles in his life pointed to the presence that he was a king with a kingdom. His teaching sounded an invitation, Mark 1, verse 1. Repent and believe the gospel, for the kingdom of God is at hand. His sacrificial death 
paid for the sins of those who would otherwise be condemned when he returns. For all who believe. And his resurrection established him as a son who God has appointed judge of the world and Lord of his coming eternal kingdom. And the judge of all the earth summons you to turn and believe the good news of Jesus. To confess him as Messiah King. And then to be baptized in his name. And so what are this morning? Holy Spirit's tapping on your heart, pricking you and saying, you haven't turned to Jesus yet. You've got all this outward stuff. You're depending on your parents. You're depending on your spouse. You're attaching yourselves to religious stuff. But Jesus isn't in there. Today is the opportunity to turn to Jesus, repent, and believe this good news, this message. I'd love to discuss that more with you at the end of the service. Hear the truth of Jesus and his good news as the returning king. This one who was appointed judge of the world will return. And believers, you know what this passage tells us? Keep believing. Live in accordance with the new heart that God has delivered to you. In the Spirit. Walk this out. Glorify Him and bring praise to God rather than coming short of His glory. What I'd like to do now here is have us read these verses and Verse 25 through 27, and close the end of this book as a call here to be established in this gospel and to sing and praise. And so if you read this with me. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which is kept secret since the world began. But now, sorry about that. But now is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. To God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Lord, your word here has 